Your Excellencies, distinguished guests and speakers, good morning and welcome to the first session of our conference. We're honored to have all of uh, with us today a distinguished group of specialists who formulate energy policy, follow energy matters and markets on a daily basis, and who focus on energy and U.S. Arab relations. Before we begin, a few housekeeping details. Louder? Hmm, okay. Each of the speakers in this session, which has to do with the energy component of Arab-U.S. relations, will have about 10 to 12 minutes for their remarks. In the interest of time, I refer you to their bios in the program booklet. This will allow more time for questions and discussion. And as, as uh, mentioned by David Bosch earlier, that on your chairs there are three by five cards. Please write your questions on these cards and pass them to the National Council staff around the room. Bring, we'll bring them forward and we'll do the best we can to answer them as fully as possible. And then we'll wrap up promptly at, at 11.30. In setting the stage for our speaker's remarks, let me start with a few general observations. Over the past year, crude oil prices have declined 45%. And the price Americans pay for gas at the pump has fallen by more than a third. Globally, long-term supply relationships are changing. Demand has been moderated by structural change. National producers continue to compete with each other for market share. Innovation and alternatives are yielding new energy supplies. And crude oil inventories are building. In short, we are witnessing the most profound change in the energy production and the supply-demand balance in decades. So what, if any, might our resource specialists have to offer? Might we, uh, what might they suggest in the realm of more effective policies to address the kind of issues and challenges that confront American and Arab uh, energy policymakers? And what are the implications for those long-term, long-established policies and relationships built around energy? This morning, we are fortunate to have with us a select group of specialists who understand how this changing landscape will impact the nature and future of U.S.-Arab relations. So it's my pleasure to introduce our distinguished speakers. I refer you to their bios in the booklet, and I'm not going to waste time in going through what, uh, basically reiterating what's there. But first, our, on the order of speakers, we'll have uh, Honorable Molly Williamson, uh, Richard Westerdale, um, Sarah Ladislaw, and uh, wrapping up will be Dr. Franson. So would you begin, please? Uh, do you want me to stay here? Yes, yes. Okay. Now you come up to the podium. Otherwise, those there couldn't see you. Thank you, John. Thank you, John. Thank you, David. Uh, and, and deep appreciations to the National Council uh, for having me back. It's a tremendous honor, and I am proud to be associated with all of these wonderful experts on the panel. Uh, this is, um, it, I have a general problem, and that is I get all excited about my topic, and then I over-talk my time, and then uh, uh, Dr. Anthony has to get a hook and pull me off the stage. So I'm trying really, really hard. I cut back a lot. Um, let me just start with observing that every day this planet consumes more than 93 million barrels of oil. 
it is the single largest, single most energy dense form of fuel, and all of the projections are that demand for this fuel will increase. And in fact, it is what has happened that this is the trajectory. When I first started speaking uh, here, the, uh, the global consumption of oil was right around 87 million barrels of oil a day. And with a brief glitch because of the 2008-2009 recession, when we did in fact as a planet consume less, ever since we have in fact been growing. And all of the projections are that we will continue to grow in our demand. Now, the top five oil-producing countries in the world, and they are, and they've moved around a little bit in, in, in order, but the top five are now Russia, Saudi Arabia, the United States, China, and Canada. The five taken together produce almost 50% of that 93-plus million barrels of oil a day we consume. We are all, all five of these producers, are obliged to take some key elements into account. All consuming nations are obliged to take these same key elements into account. That's everybody, right? And the problem that you'll notice right away is that none of these factors is about geology. It's not about what's in the ground. These are all above ground issues that affect policymakers uh, around the globe. They are all obliged to worry about very fragile economic health, both nationally and internationally. They are all obliged to worry about uh, a China uh, economic slowdown. They are all uh, ob obliged to worry about Russian aspirations, uh, both in Europe and now creating a two-front uh, uh, war situation by including Syria. They are all obliged to think about the consequences, unintended consequences of uh, oil price uh, fluctuation uh, that is uh, it's not unprecedented, but by golly, it's disturbing in uh, the volatility that it, it, it um, has produced. These are delicate times. And if I hadn't paid attention to uh, paid mention of the incredible regional unrest that we see in a critical part of the planet, namely that area, that large swath of geography referred to as the Middle East, which houses two-thirds of all of the uh, reservoirs of conventional uh, hydrocarbons. Let me underscore that right now. Everybody needs to worry about the conditions uh, in, uh, in, in the region and those ramifications. When it comes to those five top oil-producing countries, they all each have a clock to beat. And the trouble is no two clocks are in the same time zone. 
So looking at how they address their challenges, both for policymaking and for international uh, marketplace concerns, we need to keep in mind how much difference there is in addition to these common concerns. What are these clocks? If you were looking uh, at the Russian clock, for example, you were concerned about a demographic clock. You are actually losing people. Unprecedented in history that a literate country at a time of peace with abundant resources in high demand by the planet is actually losing people. But 13 million more Russians have died than have been born since the fall of the Soviet Union. It is, it is a wonderment. Nobody wants this. Uh, uh, Russian uh, demographers are, 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 uh, are very unhappy about it, but demography and statistics aren't what make babies. My mother explained that to me. <laughs> Given the, the, the fall in oil prices, as, uh, as John has uh, just pointed out, it means that the Russian economy, overwhelmingly reliant on its hydrocarbon revenues, is now worth about half or slightly less than half than it was uh, a, a full year ago. So running out of people, running out of money, oligarchy uh, needs to be maintained. You've got to keep a corrupt regime going. It costs money. If you're going to cause mischief, whether in Ukraine, whether in the Middle East, it is in the interest of the Russian clock to cause that mischief sooner rather than later. Next year they're not going to have more money. Next year they're not going to have more people. The trajectory is clear. Different clock, Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia has a different dem demographic uh, profile, as does the entire Middle East region, where more than 50% of the populations of all of the countries in the Middle East are under the age of 27. In some places, more than under the age of 24, more than 50% under the age of 24. And these young people are looking for opportunity. They're trying to picture the rest of their lives. Where are their options? What, do, what does that look like? It was King Abdullah of Saudi Arabia uh, who had a, a, a vision of needing, recognizing, and wanting to provide for these young people in Saudi Arabia and dedicated trillions of dollars for the purpose of modernizing the economy, diversifying the economy, uh, establishing and, and nurturing ever more institutions of, uh, of learning uh, to try to produce market competitive young people, people with opportunities in high, uh, high tech, uh, modernized society, and with the increasing emphasis on expanding and modernizing and diversifying the economy meant, meant concomitant requirement using more of their own product, namely more energy 
and more of their energy revenues to do so. The clock they have to beat, as they have identified it, is looking at the region around them, looking at the neighborhood and the potential contagion of violence, looking at the spread of unrest throughout the neighborhood. That's a clock to beat, and they don't know, nobody knows how much time is on that clock. Another clock, the United States. The United States, as Chaz had, had uh, pointed out earlier, has a severe infrastructure problem. Has anybody noticed the challenges of getting product to market? This is big in that it relies on one confounding principle that we have witnessed not just in the United States. This is global. This is universal. It's a principle we've all lived with, not in my backyard. So yes, we want more electricity. We don't want the generator on, uh, on our uh, block. Yes, we'd like to have more uh, terminals for gas, regasification, re liquefaction, all of, not in my backyard. Yeah, we'd like to be able to move it, transmit it. We want these electric uh, lines. We want, uh, sometimes we want pipelines. That's a whole different conversation. Uh, and where are we gonna put this? Anywhere you want, just not in my backyard. So the permitting process of doing that which we even recognize we need, that we even want to the extent we can agree to it, that process is confounding industry, confounding our own ability to supply our own needs when we have the product and we have the demand and we can't put the two together. That infrastructure problem is huge and it's a time consumer. We also have, oh, I gotta move my clocks, don't I? Okay, um, and we don't know how much time we have. Some already argue we're too late, that no matter what, it's gonna take five years, 10 years to make our infrastructure healthy. Fourth largest uh, oil producing country, China. China's going through an economic slowdown. It's, uh, um, I'm, he, I just got a card saying I'm running out of time. Um, China's got an economic slowdown. It is plummeting. Growth projections are now down to 6% growth. And, and everybody's depressed by that. Um, they also have a demographic problem, and that's the result of their successful, successful, one-child policy. And what that means is beginning this year, 2015, more Chinese are going to leave the labor force going into retirement than they have young people entering. So if the young people are the productive ones who are going to supply for the care and, 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 uh, and health and well-being of the older ones, you've got too few people producing for a growing universe of older people. You combine that with the, the world's manufacturer, that's what China has become, and there's a slowdown globally for demand of their products. Who is gonna buy all those Barbie dolls? So they're starting to close factories. What does that produce? Unhappy factory former factory workers, of course don't need more unrest, don't know how long that clock is gonna run, but that's a clock they have to beat. The last one, Canada. 
Canada came into uh, this group of top five oil-producing countries uh, when Iran, and there's only about uh, a 200,000 barrel difference a day between Canadian production and what was Iranian production uh, before uh, uh, both global sanctions and the uh, price dropped out of the market. Uh, so the, the, there's a certain artificiality uh, to the, the rise of Canada. They also have a terrible clock uh, to confront, and that is also infrastructure. They can't get product to market. They would like very much to get their very thick bitumen. That's, the, that's this goop that comes out of having uh, uh, washed uh, Canadian oil sands to, to get the bitumen out. Then they have to make a slurry. They want to get it into pipes that will take it to U.S. refineries. Money is to be made here. U.S. refineries uh, that can uh, that uh, can refine their product and make it possible to get to market. And um, we still haven't made a decision. Working on it, though. Good seven, eight years working on this run. Long, long story short, can we work together? These top five who produce almost half of the 93-plus million barrels a day that the, uh, of oil a day that, uh, that the globe consumes. Can we work together? I mean, we already know how to be competitive. The Russians already know how to make a, a, a weapon out of energy. But can we work together? Do we know how to make this work? One area that I, I bring to your attention as an, uh, as an example of cooperation is between the United States and the oil-producing Arab world. With Saudi Arabia in particular, Your Highness, nice to see you, um, there has been tremendous cooperation in three different kinds of fields. One is the straight industry uh, technology. We work together. I've had the honor of, of getting to see some of this incredible technology in Dahran and elsewhere in, uh, in Saudi Arabia. Another is in um, renewable uh, and alternative R&D technologies. Uh, and uh, uh, another is in a program uh, that the uh, oil, uh, Arab oil-producing world has called for in promoting dialogue between consumers and producers and coming up with increasing avenues where we can work together. That's an impressive thing. And if that can spread, if that can be brought to greater use and greater prestige, uh, then that's a path I hope we'll be able to multiply. Any region that can actually solve a problem is a region others might wish to follow, and that's a picture for us all. I'm sorry I've overtalked my time. Thank you very much. Good morning. I'd like to thank uh, the National Council, the organizers and sponsors of this event for the opportunity to be here today. I am both humbled and honored to be among such esteemed colleagues and in front of Your Highness as well as other dignitaries that are here in the audience today. The mere fact that we're sitting here on this panel, one of the opening panels in discussing energy, just reemphasizes and underscores the role that energy plays in foreign policy. And it's important to us as the United States and will be the focus of my comments here today. Folks, the world has changed. We're living in a time of dramatic change in global energy 
markets. The picture that many of us grew up, uh, grew up with, that we envision where OPEC countries produce and OECD countries consume has been shattered. And I'll talk more to that in just a moment. Technology, entrepreneurship, good policy, and commodity prices have radically changed the energy landscape, both internationally, but more specifically here domestically at home. And this fundamental change has increased our national security and has the potential to do so internationally. It's fostered economic growth domestically and internationally. And if we manage it right, can have a positive impact on global climate change. And this is actually a good news story. At the Energy Resources Bureau within the State Department here in Washington, we address the pivotal intersection between energy and foreign policy. You see, energy really does sit at this nexus, this nexus between national security, economic development, and environmental responsibility. The importance of the geopolitics of energy is evident from recent developments playing out around the world. As my colleague has noted, and I'll just touch upon a few before zeroing in within the region. Russia's aggression toward the Ukraine is playing out in the Ukraine's energy sector and has huge implications on European energy security. Look at the South China Sea. Tensions over the South China Sea, where nearly a third of global crude oil, as well as half of the global LNG supply pass every day, is at risk. Venezuela. Sizable oil discoveries have been found offshore, and yet we're at a time where we're seeing an unprecedented level of military deployments by Venezuela within the region. And global supply disruptions, to bring it back to energy, we're at a time where still more than three million barrels a day of oil production has been marginalized. And then to bring it into the Gulf region in particular, we know of the challenges faced here, and I'll talk more to it in just a second, that include not the least of which Daesh, Iran, and lower oil prices. Our diplomatic engagements abroad enable the U.S. foreign policy to embrace energy's role as a driver of economic growth, stability, and cooperation rather than conflict. But what is driving the geopolitics of energy? and the U.S. energy policy, both domestically and internationally. I'll come back to some of the points that Molly raised a moment ago. On the demand side, we continue to see a historic shift where non-OECD economies have surpassed the developed economies in terms of global energy consumption. In fact, in 2014, for the first time, we saw that 51% of global oil demand was in the non-OECD countries. We also saw that 53% of natural gas demand was from non-OECD countries. When you think about that, and we look broadly, and as Molly has mentioned, where, the, where is the engine of this growth? It's in the Asia-Pacific. We see China accounting for roughly half of the energy demand growth this decade, with India about 10% of that growth, and India continuing to grow into the future. I'd be remiss if I didn't talk the whole supply-demand balance and look at the supply side. Production and delivery of energy is also changing dramatically. Energy supply is no longer concentrated in a small number of OPEC countries. New producers are joining the ranks. I'll mention a few of those. With roughly 70 billion cubic meters of LNG capacity under construction 
Australia is on the cusp of joining Qatar as a leading exporter of LNG. And by 2020, Australia, Qatar, and the United States are anticipated to provide approximately 100 billion cubic meters of LNG capacity each to global markets. Look to our southern border. Look at what's happened in Mexico. The energy security steps that they have taken, the recent historic energy reforms, have allowed and enabled Mexico to attract international capital and technology necessary to reverse its oil production declines. And then, of course, if you look at overall non-OPEC production, which has grown largely on the shoulders of North American shale production, we're seeing a growth of 2.4 million barrels a day in 2014, and we're looking at a perhaps more modest rate of growth of 1.4 million barrels a day this year. But it's still significant, and it's leading to significant shifts in foreign policy around the world. Now I have to come back here and talk a little bit about our domestic picture. Let me more specifically talk about the trends here in North America. In a period marked by increased market volatility, and given the remarkable shifts that we're seeing globally in supply and demand, there is widespread speculation as to the impact in the future of U.S. shale production, our unconventional oil and gas production. But the thing that has, I think, surprised many analysts and many of our friends around the world is that the U.S. shale sector is very resilient. While low prices are creating new challenges on that sector, the new technologies and the innovative practices are allowing producers to continue to keep overall production levels up to meet the decline rates that we're seeing here in the U.S. A couple of interesting statistics in that regard. The U.S. is producing about 9.1 million barrels of oil a day. That's just short of the four-decade high of 9.6 million barrels a day we saw back in April, and it's well above the 5.2 million barrels a day we were producing just a decade ago. This increase in oil production, more specifically over the past four years, has been about 3.5 million barrels a day. Let's put that into perspective for this audience. That's like adding a new ADAC to global supply. It is more than countries such as Kuwait, the United Arab Emirates, or even Iran, which we'll talk about in a moment, produced today. And according to the U.S. Energy Information Administration, natural gas production, again, mainly based on the developments we're seeing in the shale sector here, is anticipated to skyrocket more than 40% to a trillion, a trillion cubic meters per year by 2040. As U.S. oil and gas production is expected to continue to increase, renewable energy and technologies like wind and solar have also reached a technological maturity. And the costs are now competitive with conventional resources in, in an increasing number of areas. And in 2013, here in the U.S., renewables accounted for 60% of U.S new U.S. generation capacity. U.S. producers will need to continue to adapt to this supply, demand dynamic, and market changes. 
But will we remain optimistic that the United States and our energy future is bright? And it's with that that the United States can play a transformative role in the global markets. But just to be clear, no matter how much energy we produce, the United States neither has the desire nor the ability to uncouple from global energy markets. These changes, the changes we're seeing that I've described, have implications. They have implications on our national security, they have implications on our ge geopolitical relationships, and on our economy. So we cannot isolate ourselves from the rest of the world. We live in a global economy that is interdependent. One that there's no better example of that than the global energy markets, and in particular the global oil markets. A, a, a fine point of this is disruptions anywhere in the world cause price volatility and have an implication on Joe Q. Public right down the street who's putting gasoline into their car. So it is in our vested interest to remain engaged. And the fact is very simple. We are energy interdependent. I would submit to you for these reasons that we're actually emerging from four decades, and it really has been since the oil embargoes of the 70s, where much of global energy policy, not just the U.S.'s, but broadly, was driven by energy scarcity. And in many instances, a zero-sum gain mentality. But today we're entering a new era, an era of energy abundance, certainly true here domestically within the U.S., as we look at global oil markets being oversupplied. And it's really in everyone's best interest to ensure that all nations are able to meet those basic needs that are represented by this nexus of energy that I've described to you. Now, just to kind of wrap things up, I'd like to talk for just a moment on energy security. It's that energy independence that's part of why the United States is so committed to ensuring efficiently operating markets and energy security of our friends, allies, and most specifically those within the Gulf region. Most recently, the U.S. has reinforced this leadership through our efforts to combat ISIL in both Syria and Iraq. It's well known that ISIL extracts revenue from the oil produced within the territory which it controls. And although the value chain there is complex and in many instances opaque, we continue to make strides and move forward in lockstep with our international coalition to disrupt this lucrative trade. And we can talk more about that during the Q&A session. Similarly, our commitments to the region are demonstrated through the historic deal with Iran. I know there's been a lot of discussion of that here today, but the fact of the matter, the provisions that have been put into place allow us to verifiably prevent Iran from obtaining a nuclear weapon. And I could go on at length. I think you all know many of the points in this regard. But moreover, I'd like to talk about the energy relationship and, as, and how Iran comes back into the global market and the implication that that has on this global supply balance and dynamic. I think that's important and that's an area we need to address and we need to be cognizant of. 
in the interest of time and uh, knowing that we'll have an opportunity to discuss these matters further, I'll bring to a close my remarks. But just simply, we're finding ourselves in the midst of a major transformation in the nature of global energy markets. Even as we grapple with the implications of the rapid changes around us, it's clear that energy markets remain more interconnected, interdependent today than at any other point in history. Energy independence is not an option in today's interdependent world. The United States will remain engaged to help our partners and our friends, especially those in the Gulf region, to address many of these energy security challenges and to help usher in a cleaner energy future. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you very much for having me here this morning. I want to thank John, John, David, and the rest of the team uh, for having us here and um, uh, in your ongoing deep dedication to these two very important regions of the world. You are to be congratulated uh, for hosting this event every year and, and, uh, and uh, you serving as sort of a benchmark for us to think about how we've progressed from uh, the year before. I know I've got one clock to follow and that is my time clock for talking, so I'm going to offer a few uh, perspectives. I was asked to talk a little bit about renewable energy and alternative energy cooperation, uh, an area that I spend a good deal of time focusing on. Uh, as many of my colleagues suggested, uh, we are living in a time of great change for the energy sector <clears throat> and great uh, <clears throat> excuse me, uncertainty in the global security environment. Given all that's happened in the world and the complex and contentious set of issues on the agenda for world leaders, I'm routinely surprised or struck by the role that alternative energy, be it renewables or unconventionals or even energy efficiency, play uh, in the relations between a broad and diverse set of countries around the world. Here in the United States, our experience gained from the remarkable surge in tight oil and shale gas production. Uh, along with the efforts to promote renewable energy as part of the administration's comprehensive plan to address climate change, uh, have served uh, as tools of engagement with longtime allies such as the EU, Japan, and GCC countries, as well as emerging powers such as China and India. Barely a meeting goes by without a mention of this strategic imperative of renewable energy, alternative energy, and advanced uh, energy systems in one of these uh, 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 multilateral or bilateral meetings. Sometimes it makes me laugh to think of the heightened role that clean energy and alternative uh, energy plays in these forums. I suppose next to the issues of terrorism, political instability, territorial claims, mass migration, energy promotion of any sort is looked to as a source of uh, productive and positive cooperation. Uh, as many GCC countries can attest, despite the shared recognition that alternative energy sources provide a wide variety of potential benefits, realizing that potential is no easy task. At home, uh, as, as, as home to approximately one-fifth of the global gas reserves, one-third of global oil reserves, some of the lowest cost production in the world, and governments that are dependent on oil and gas for nearly 90% of total revenue, the comparative political and economic advantage of oil and gas is very hard to beat. As the cost of renewable power generation comes down, countries all over the world, including several of the, in the GCC, have actively reevaluated ways to tap into the equally abundant renewable resources that exist in their region. 
ambitious solar targets in places like Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Kuwait. And for those of you who watched the Democratic debates last night, uh, understand the United States as well. I think we had a few ambitious solar targets in the platform uh, that appeared last night. Uh, these targets are proliferating widely across, across the globe. And it is true that compared with the past, renewable energy sources and systems are advancing far faster and reaching more significant shares of the global energy mix than ever before. But the share is still a minority of the system and far from delivering on some of the full, uh, delivering in full some of the lofty objectives attached to its promotion. Most notably, the deep decarbonization of the energy sector to avoid another looming clock, the long-term impacts of changing uh, global climate. All of this is not to poo-poo the progress that has been made. I suggest the instincts to reach uh, to renewable energy and alternative energy as a positive source of cooperation are well-placed, but they must be followed through by the actions that will make them succeed. A clean energy agenda can be a complement and not a detractor from other goals. Development, uh, excuse me, development, economic diversification, energy efficiency, employment, environmental impacts, all of these things are, are, are complementary objectives to the renewable energy and alternative energy agenda. International multilateral stakeholder initiatives are available to provide technical and policy-oriented skills and advice, but they don't help in making the difficult political decisions at home that are necessary to create the policies, regulations, and economic incentives, the institutional base and inertia that is required to, to achieve some of the transformation that we are discussing. These are difficult and groundbreaking objectives and worthy of our shared dedication and focus. And given the atmosphere of great change and uncertainty, it is important that organizations like this one help to craft new and ambitious cooperation efforts that rise to the challenges of our time. Thank you. John, I too, Mr. Chairman, I too like to thank you for inviting me to this very, very important conference. And I think, uh, as already was expressed, energy is vital to the region, but it is also vital to us, it's vital to almost every country. And while major efforts are being made, as Sarah indicated, to, to increase renewables uh, in order to reach the target on CO2 emissions. When you look at any available long-term assessment, whether it's OPEX or the IEAs or the EIAs or the industry, uh, every single one indicates that maybe unfortunate, but it's a reality, fossil fuels will remain dominant for decades to come. At the moment, fossil fuels are about 80% of the fuels that we are using in the world. The IEA, OPEC, and others say that by in, in another 25 years, by 2040, as long as those long-term forecasts go, in the most optimistic case, it's about 74%, and the more pessimistic OPEC case is 78%. So it is going to be with us for a very long time to go. Uh, and oil, oil share, which used to be oil 50%, when the major changes started in the mid-1970s, now it's around 32%, and for a whole variety of reasons, it continued to decline somewhat, 
the more optimistic case of the IEA is 24% in 2040, OPEX is 29%, it, it, but it's somewhere in, in that range. But it's still a lot of oil. And it means that in terms of actual consumption, consumption is likely to continue to rise from about 90 million barrels a day, 210, 115 million barrels a day, 25 years out. And we also know, it's a, it's a fact, that of all the oil reserves in the world today, 1.7 billion barrels, half of it is in the Middle East. So whatever we say about tide oil and everything, the Middle East remains crucial for global supply of oil for decades to come. And the demand will be there because in that same period, population is expected to grow by 2 billion people. Now, most of that is outside of the, almost all of it, I would say, is outside of the OECD. But those 2 billion people, they aspire the same standard of living as we have. The Brookings Institute indicated that the middle class, global middle class, is expected to grow from 2 to 4.9 billion as early as 2030, which is, I think, fairly optimistic. And the question is, what do you mean by middle class? But that means all these middle class people want to have refrigerators, they want to have a nice apartment to live in, and ultimately they want to have their own means of transportation, preferably a car. And for that you need oil. Yes, it is true that we have Tesla and others beginning to make a very small but a determined inroad in the oil, in the oil sector, and we have to watch it very carefully. Uh, because ultimately they could be a, a, major, a major breakthrough and that's as dangerous for the automotive industry as it would be for the oil industry. I remember my wife typing my doctoral dissertation on an underwood. Now many of the young people sitting there probably think underwood is kind of underwear. No, those were typewriters. Uh, had any of you ever used a typewriter? Yeah, you see, nobody. My poor wife had to, to, to type 250 pages on a typewriter and then white out when mistakes were made. It's hard to believe that we had that technology. But the technology now is, uh, is moving so quickly and so fast that don't underestimate what Tesla and others are doing. It's a, a massive, massive effort and it's, it's going to succeed question is when and how long, and will the producers of oil change their policy, keeping this in mind? I think they will, and we'll get to that. I just want to say a few words about where we are now and where, where we are going. It's quite clearly that uh, when Saudi Arabia made the decision in uh, the summer of, of, of last year uh, to defend their market share, it, it was primarily caused by what happened in the United States. We had year after year after year for several years produced more than a million barrels a day of additional, additional tight oil, as a light oil, and therefore imported less oil from the countries that were producing that oil. Now those countries, these African countries that were producing that oil, were then forced to find a market for it somewhere else. So they went to the Asian market and sold it in the Asian markets. But those were the traditional markets of the Middle East producers, and they wanted to keep their market share. So Saudis and others said, we're going to defend our market share, and they began to discount. But the game went on, and then by the time the autumn started, uh, and the, uh, Ali Naimi, the oil minister, tried to, uh, to, to find a kind of a, 
a group OPEC and non-OPEC countries to see if we could cut production sufficiently to, to sustain uh, a high oil price, but it didn't work. So then Saudi Kingdom uh, decided with its OPEC partners, enough is enough, we're going to go for market share. Now, is this new? No. For those of you with much gray hair as I have, I was there in 1986 when a similar situation occurred. At that time, it was Sheikh Zaki Yamani. And Zaki Yamani, under the instructions of his king, after having lost by cutting production from the early 80s until 1985 by more than two-thirds, and continued to lose because others were producing more, then the kingdom decided, well, enough is enough. And they said, we're going to go for market share. And within half a year, oil prices collapsed by about 50%, just like today. Now, in that case, after a few months, OPEC began to, to, to agree, a new consensus emerged within OPEC, but OPEC did not regain the market share that it had in 1979 until around the year 2000. Now, this time around, it's quite different, because this time around, there is no... At that time, there was 50% spare capacity within OPEC, and there was 50% of OPEC capacity was shut in. Today, the only spare capacity in the world is Saudis, about 2 million barrels a day. There is no other spare capacity. And we are not a swing producer, as some people say, because we are not like Saudi Arabia that have oil fields where they just can pump more very quickly within 30 days, and certainly within 90 days. We cannot do that with tight oil. It takes time. Once you start, as we are now, reaching a plateau and you start declining if prices continue to be weak, you cannot very quickly bring it back into production. It takes more time. Now, we can use strategic reserve, of course, if prices will get too high, if that is what we wanted to do. But there is no, no very quick solution for that. So the kingdom still has that power, and OPEC still has that power. The situation as, as it is now, since the price uh, collapsed, we are now looking at... Uh, what has resulted, uh, as a, as, you know, what has what's had now happened since the prices declined. Indeed, uh, has Saudi Arabia achieved its target of bringing the back the market into balance? And I would say not yet. Uh, it takes time. It's like a super tanker in the ocean. It takes time to turn around. Now, this is going to take time because the momentum was there still on the supply side. Investments made years ago are now beginning to bear fruit, like in Brazil and other cases. In a country like, the, like, the, like Russia, the, the massive devaluation of the currency made it much cheaper now for them to produce oil than it was before because they're paying their workers in rubles and getting foreign exchange when they're selling oil and uh, and gas. So it all takes time. There's a low price, it has an impact, but it takes more time. And on the United States production, I think all of us have been surprised how well it has held up uh, in, uh, this year. The question is, will it continue to hold up? And where do, what does 2016 look like? Well, the demand grows. The IEA just released its uh, latest report for uh, October. And the optimism that existed on the demand side hasn't evaporated, but it has significantly reduced. Now I is taking about 1.2 million barrels a day uh, in 2016. Others are still saying it could be as high as 1.8. So you have a range of credible forecasts for next year's demand, 1.2, 1.8. On the supply side, we find a similar situation. IEA now, in the October report, says non-OPEC supply will come down by half a million barrels a day. Other credible forecasts have it from plus 
250,000 barrels a day to minus 0.8. So huge range on the demand side, huge range on the supply side. So as a forecaster, you can actually make it come out the way you want. The glass is half empty or the glass is half full. Uh, it is very difficult to say what is going to happen, particularly since we were not expecting what happened in 2015 to actually happen, but it did. So it looks like, however, that we, whatever scenario you take, the market will continue to be in oversupply at least until the third quarter of 2016. OPEC is going to continue to be above its target of 30 million barrels a day. This year it's been 31.7. And there are expectations that Iraq will continue to produce more. Mind you, Iraq in the last couple of years has produced a million barrels a day more uh, than, uh, than it did before. And now, of course, with the agreement with Iran, once the san international sanctions are lifted, Minister Zangani believes that by the, second, by the second half of next year they will be producing another million barrels a day. There are doubts about this. So some say yes, some say no. We don't really know what is going to happen uh, by that time. But you can argue that you could make a case that by the end of next year or early 2017 the market will begin to balance. The demand and supply be back in some kind of balance. So that would mean it is not a very long uh, low price pass that many had predicted, but there is a but to it, always a but. Once you have the rebalancing, at what price? Well, it's highly unlikely we go back to $100 a barrel. Mark Papa, the king of tight oil, says we need about $100 a barrel in the United States to get the same kind of growth in tight oil as we had between 2010 and 2014. He also said, he said this last week, by the way, at the Oil and Money Conference in London, uh, he said also that for a greenfield project, in other words, a new project on tight oil, you need a price of at least $70 a barrel. Now, keep the $70 in mind, because this is the price where many people are looking at that will happen after the rebalancing. We will have a period of well, $660 oil, you know, a little bit less uh, for, for, the, for the WTI, a little bit more brand, but a kind of a, a range of uh, $60 to $70 a barrel, maybe slightly higher, but in that general range. Now, if that happens, then will the Saudis have achieved their target? Well, we'll have to, to see then what will happen to this tight oil. If prices go $70 and above $70, will tight oil production start to be ramped up again, or will it not? This is something one has to find out. And what could be the counter-strategy of OPEC, and particularly of the Saudis? They have far more oil than you and I think. They're very modest about their oil. They, if you take their oil reserves from the BP statistics are about 260 billion barrels. But the that was based on about one-third recovery factor. But if you take the current recovery factor in their major fields like Epcake, uh, Safania and so on, it's much higher than that. So they're looking at ultimate recovery above 50%. Now the ultimate recovery above 50% and you look at their oil in place, they may actually have producible oil of at least 400 billion barrels. Now if you have that much and you have the target in mind that by 2050 uh, Toyota wants to be out of the, uh, the fossil fuel uh, for, for, for cars and you have Tesla coming up, do you, don't you want to think, well, it might not be a bad idea to produce more of that oil now 
rather than keeping it in the ground. In other words, monetize it now, don't monetize it in 2050. And if that is what you do, then the OPEC family, and particularly Saudi and others in the GCC, can slowly but steadily, when prices become to move a little bit better, take that additional market share. Because the high-cost oil, Arctic oil, ultra-deep water oil, needs a much higher price and it will take the industry, which is brilliant in technology, a longer time to find ways to do it cheaper. And in the meantime, OPEC, and particularly the Kingdom and its GCC partners, have that option. I don't know whether they will do it, but it is an option. So I think there is a, still uh, the next year will be difficult, but uh, it, it looks like things might improve by around uh, 2015. Finally, one little comment about the U.S. If we stay at a relatively low level of uh, low price, we may not reach this target of independence uh, by the time we had hoped for. Mark Papa, who I quoted before, the king of Tide Oil, very successful, one of the most successful people in the, in the Tide Oil business, told us also last week that if we get to a higher price level, $70, $80 oil, we may get back, but not the same rate of growth, maybe half a million barrels a day uh, per year, for a period of six, seven years. Now, and that is in line with IEA and EIA assessments that we may reach a kind of a plateau in 10 years' time on tight oil, and after that, we don't know. We hope technology will continue to improve, and we will continue that party. But Saudi as I said, is sitting on massive oil reserves that can easily be produced for a very long time. So we should, we should keep in mind that the Middle East is not a place to leave because of short-term uh, attractiveness if we were to become independent, because that is the part of the world where 50% of the oil is. Uh, as we heard this morning from Ambassador uh, Freeman, that our policies have been, let us say, less than optimal, I want to be kind. Uh, if that region were uh, to no longer, if we were no longer to have significant influence in that region, I just want to end them with a quote of, of, of uh, the geopolitician or geostrategic uh, writer McKinder, that he who controls the rimlands, which are those areas in, in, in the Middle East, uh, controls the heartland, which is the Eurasian continent, and he controls the heartland, controls the world. Well, we want to keep a finger in the pie, and we have our friends in the region. Let us honor our friends and uh, keep that relationship going rather than allowing it for short-term convenience to get out of our area of interest. Thank you very much. Uh, speakers have been commendably within the um, time limits assigned them, and as a matter of fact, they finished five minutes early. We have 35 minutes for uh, discussion, question. We have uh, a range of questions. I hope those who have them have uh, taken advantage of uh, writing them down on their three-by-five cards. Uh, it's best or uh, nice to preface them with how because the answer to a how question cannot be yes, cannot be no. It, it draws out more substantively insightful uh, knowledge and insight and information, which is uh, vital to a quest for understanding. Uh, 
We have um, among questions, I'll ask one, then John Pratt will ask one, then we'll go back and forth. And any of the uh, panelists uh, can uh, uh, raise their hand and John will recognize them uh, to uh, respond. And uh, again, I'd like to reinforce that this is a policymakers conference. Uh, we want to provide food for thought for the policymakers. What might we do differently? implicitly better or more effectively. Why, how, how feasible is it, how practical is it? Uh, jar the minds of those who are in a rut or a routine or a regimen of doing the same old, same old, same old, same old, because they haven't been challenged. Here's a chance to challenge the policymakers and uh, try to improve uh, the situation. Uh, All right, how has um, or how will the increased energy self-sufficiency of the United States uh, impact relations between the United States and the Arab world more generally and the Arab world producers specifically? Um, uh, Richard, you want uh, Mr. Westerlake? Will I first cut at that? Then um, maybe Molly and Herman or Sarah? can have a whack at it too. Richard, go ahead. Sure. Um, I think very simply all you have to do is look at the interconnected nature of the global economies and specifically the oil markets to realize the fallacy of uh, the idea of energy independence. And while here domestically and certainly within North America there may be the ability to balance the scales, the fact of the matter, and, and the tsunami in Japan is probably a, a great example where uh, Fukushima, uh, the incident there, uh, caused the Japanese to take one-third of their power generation offline. That caused them to, in fact, have to increase their imports of both uh, refined fuel oil as well as that of liquid natural gas. The ripple effect in an interconnected economy was that, yes, we at home here uh, in the United States felt the implications of that. You could use any supply disruption uh, to that point. Now, more specifically, our commitment to peace and stability in the Gulf and the Middle East has never been stronger. We recognize the challenges that are faced today, and in fact, we are concerned and we have a vested interest to ensure, because if you think about it, as my colleagues, my esteemed colleagues here have pointed out, Look at the Straits of Hormoz. Look at the amount of global energy that passes through that choke point or that bottleneck. Look at the region writ large. And while we can boast the U.S. production today, as we look into the future and the growth in global energy demand, it will, in fact, be the Gulf region, the Middle East, that is going to be, again, the dominant supplier there. So we need to not only look at the short game, we need to look at the long game. We have to recognize the globally interconnected nature of the markets and uh, we need to reaffirm that commitment that we have because as I've said energy can be a source of cooperation or one of conflict. All right. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, Ms. Williamson, uh, Dr. Franson. Thank you. Um, yes, as I started out uh, to observe, uh, we have a consistently growing trajectory of global consumption 
of oil. I, I mentioned it started out uh, speaking here, it was 87 million barrels a day. Today it's 93 plus million barrels a day. You heard projections uh, going out to 112, 115, 120 uh, million barrels a day. Uh, this means there is growing demand. What we have is a, is a, 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 an unusual uh, imbalance of supply and demand right now. That it will even out through growth of, uh, of demand uh, is, is not really a source of debate. The other point that John has just addressed, which I think is terribly important, we're looking at a region uh, which uh, holds the majority, sits atop the majority of uh, conventional hydrocarbons. 40% of all the globally traded oil today comes from this region called the Middle East. And it has to go through three choke points, the Babel Mandeb, the Suez Canal, and the Strait of Hormuz. And the Strait of Hormuz is the largest of those three choke points. Any major disruption, any fear of major disruption, throws the global marketplace into a tizzy. One cannot walk away. It, the, the interests of the world are ill-served by not doing everything possible to promote smooth, consistent transmission of uh, this uh, important commodity globally. And the fact that the United States really only uh, uh, gets supplies from the Middle East uh, overwhelmingly from Saudi Arabia rather than any other country uh, in this region doesn't mean it's easier to walk away. To the contrary, our friends, our neighbors, our, our, uh, our allies are in our face throughout uh, diplomatic exchanges saying, what about us? Make sure there is uh, the availability. Make sure that we don't uh, encounter security problems. So these are issues, long-term and short-term, that will tie us together on an energy basis. Lots of other issues that hold us together, but in particular on an energy basis. Thank you. Herman, you want to comment on that? Sarah? Yes. Well, I think global, the global energy security issues uh, are and will continue to be extremely important, maybe dominant. Uh, to look at energy independence as an excuse to uh, rebalance our interest in the world may not be the smartest uh, thing to do. Because what do we see now? We see now in, 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 in the region, we see a ma much more assertive Russia uh, moving into Syria to back up the Assad government. And if it succeeds, with support of Hezbollah, uh, and Irani and Iraqi, uh, sorry, Iraqi Shia and Iran, uh, it would be a big change in the region. It would lead to a very difficult situation in the region. So it doesn't appear that we have at the moment an actual policy to cope with this. We were surprised in a way by, by this. But this could so seriously impact on uh, who controls the oil in the region that uh, this, I think, is, 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 is probably the biggest challenge we are facing. And it's amazing that those who are making these oil price predictions and they see very, very long-term period of low prices are not taking into account 
the, the, the biggest upheavals that exist in the region since the end of the Ottoman Empire. And not to put that into part of your energy equation is, uh, is a very serious mistake. Thank you, Herbert. Okay. Sarah. And just really very quickly, um, I, I realize that I'm up here with some of the most sensible and experienced energy policy wonks in the city or even in the world. Uh, and I, I often fear that this discussion, we give the sensible answer, which I think is that, you know, the unconventional oil and gas revolution in the United States hasn't really changed the strategic position of the United States vis-a-vis -vis countries in the Middle East. I think while that's a recognized reality for many of us who sort of work in and advocate for sound policy in this area, I do think we have to acknowledge that in a lot of our political discourse in the United States, um, the opposite is true, right? Energy independence resonates for a reason, uh, whether you think it's realistic or not. And the unconventional revolution in the United States has sort of fed into that dynamic. We did a major study on this two years ago, at which point we were sort of at a different point in the unconventional revolution in the United States. And we interestingly sort of found that energy was being used as a proxy for a general feeling about the U.S. desire to withdraw from the world and the region in general, right? People were sort of conflating those two things. What's been interesting and useful for me in the last two years is to see how even sort of absent that line of, or even with that line of argumentation that the United States was on a path towards energy independence and the more plausible and dramatic that seemed, uh, the United States as a world power really couldn't detach from the region. And in fact, the response has been deeper engagement. And so I think that that's a really tremendously useful uh, experience for the United States to have had when you look back at the last 40 years of this mantra of energy independence. Uh, and I think that's a learning process that we're undergoing. But we would be uh, probably misleading if we didn't say that among some policy circles, even here in Washington, it was still a message that resonates. Thank can I add one, one last comment, if I may, please? And this gets to the complexity of the challenge. And we can look at this in political, we, geopolitical terms. We can look at it in economic terms. But one thing that I want to reemphasize is that the signals to the markets are many today. You've heard each of us talk about those. And what will be interesting in terms of this interdependence, this balance between U.S. shale production and more specifically the, uh, the Middle Eastern production is how responsive the U.S. shale market is to price signals, how quickly that uh, this oil production will come back online. I think we've, many have been surprised by what we're seeing unfold in front of us. Uh, some analysts argue that we're at a time where the U.S. is by de facto uh, or default becoming the swing supplier in the world, a role that Saudi Arabia had, uh, had held for many, many years. Why I put it in this context is because I think there is still, I talk about the sea state change, I talk about the changes in the market. We're all still assessing this and how that factors into the relationships we have. And the day of reckoning, and what I mean by that, we're, with the sustained low oil prices, what that's doing uh, to the U.S. shale production here. Uh, many argue that the smaller, the medium cap uh, EMP companies in the U.S., 
there's a time where their balance sheets are susceptible and uh, the changes in uh, reserves-based lending here in the U.S., not to get too wonky, right. are actually putting them at risk, and that could change the dynamics. So we're really watching the newness, and it's really been within the last four to five years of these changes, and we're all assessing, and that's why we've seen a lot of the volatility in the marketplace. And I, I think economically we have to keep those considerations in mind because they do play into the geopolitics. Mm -hmm. Okay, well then that leads us right into, basically that leads us into this next question in terms of, it was asked about how can we raise the energy literacy rate um, of, over sound bites uh, on this debate and, and, and the U.S. media and, um, uh, and the NGO advocacy sector. So is there a strategy that could be adopted to make this, uh, the energy component of our economy a little bit more um, out there in terms of uh, people's awareness and literacy on, on the issues um, rather than just being a marketplace or a market-driven um, uh, process where people realize, oh, oil prices are going down, yay, we've got energy independence, and, le and then go on to the next, next show. Sure. I, I always worry about when we get into the territory of energy literacy and sort of making sure everybody understands where their energy comes from and all of that sort of thing. I, I do think it happens, it comes up a lot in U.S. political debates. Um, and it, I think that a lot of people do understand certain components of the energy sector, but sort of understanding in its entirety is sort of asking them all to become an energy specialist, which I think is mildly unrealistic um, for most of the population. I think that the question for policymakers, even though, yes, it is a lofty objective, and I actually teach, so I should probably shut up right now, um, but... Uh, but um, I do think that the imperative for policymakers is to send the right signals to consumers, right? I think that it is it is hard to envision uh, even sort of you know the types of policy debates that would be um, uh, or 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 policy interactions with the public that would be as developed as anyone would want to have them in terms of energy literacy. I think that the idea here is to try and figure out how the policies we create and the economic incentives and market mechanisms we use um, interface with the people who are consuming and producing energy. And I actually think that's getting much more complicated, right? Uh, people's, the, the era of the enabled consumer uh, is something we're talking a lot about on the electric power side of the equation and certainly something we're going to be talking about on the transportation side if we're not already. So understanding how consumers will newly interface uh, with the energy uh, that they have, I think, is uh, an area that, quite frankly, um, not everybody understands perfectly and policymakers are getting educated about and may help uh, raise the level of debate. So, Thank you. Molly? Thank you. Um, I, I applaud the question. I think it's a noble goal. I would like to see this not, however, as a matter of government policy, uh, lest we get government doing all sorts of uh, direction of, uh, of education. But I have noticed, I've noticed that industry itself has undertaken programs 
companies have undertaken programs to engage their communities with uh, uh, sort of science of the day for grade school kids, for high school kids, in some cases uh, helping them just just the science uh, uh, end of, of things, but opening this up later for um, uh, being able to identify their own uh, their own um, uh, labor pool of trained people, perhaps uh, done later on with scholarships and the like. Something that Sarah didn't say uh, when when uh, she just made her remarks was the, um, I think, unique role that her uh, organization, CSIS, has undertaken in producing a iTunes University program uh, of uh, an, an energy education primer. I think that's wonderful. It's a 13-part series, is it, Sarah? And, uh, and, and organizations reaching out so that people don't have to just look up, you know, frequently asked questions on, on, uh, on websites. They can actually have a little program, very understandable, very digestible, and uh, no doubt in my mind will raise the uh, energy literacy levels in this country uh, enormously. Yeah, thank you. Herman, you have anything to add? No. no. Okay, great. All right. Yep. Uh, shifting uh, this uh, somewhat here, uh, with regard to the new discoveries of uh, gas uh, uh, supplies and sources uh, onshore and offshore Egypt, and the other newfound pockets of uh, natural gas, uh, not just off the coast of Egypt, but um, Lebanon, Palestine, and Israel. Where might these, or how uh, are these likely to affect the power dynamics in the area? Sooner, midterm, longer term, if at all. Herman, please. Well, it started with Israel. The major discovery was made several years ago of, I think it was, you can correct me if I'm wrong, 30 trillion cubic feet, which could keep Israel supplied for a very, very long time and enable them to export to surrounding countries as they want. Uh, Egypt is more recent, a very large uh, find, maybe around also 30 trillion cubic feet by ENI, but it will take a little bit longer to develop. It cannot be very quickly developed. It will take years. Uh, one, one could look toward an interesting possibility uh, if, if um, in the past, as you know, uh, Egypt exported gas to, uh, uh, to Israel, perhaps now Israel could export gas to Egypt and then when Egypt's field will be developed somewhat 10 years from now or maybe, maybe a little earlier, then uh, it, it, it would benefit Egypt and it could also uh, be uh, an export, a net exporter again at that time. Anyone else uh, wish to comment yes, on this? Yes. If I can jump in, I think we have to also put this into the perspective in the fact that uh, countries such as Egypt that need... Speaking uh, to... Yeah, yes, I, I am. Okay. Uh, countries such as Egypt 
Sorry for that. Countries such as Egypt that need direct foreign investment are, in fact, competing for those investments globally in a market that is uh, right now saturated. And as such, it will become very important to get the framework right to incentivize uh, the type of investments that are going to be necessary to realize the potential that these resources have. So I just wanted to add that bit. Okay. Yeah, I've, Next uh, question. Um, <laughs> Did you want to Herman, John, go ahead. You mentioned Tesla, the electric car, 2050. Um, question came up with uh, how, how will Tesla decrease oil needs as electricity must be generated and usually by oil generation. Basically, not in my backyard. Thank you. Um, but I think if you wouldn't mind addressing that. Well, the one thing we have at the moment a real abundance of in the United States is gas. In, contra in contrast to tight oil, shale gas is much more abundant. So we are going to be a major exporter of, in fact, of LNG in the next decade, starting actually the, end, the very end of this year, the first cargo. Um, but what is holding back shale gas development is a market. There's not that much demand for gas in, in, in America at this point. Now, the power sector is not, uh, is not consuming enough gas, strangely enough. So the, ga the, 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 the future of uh, electric cars will largely be, con uh, be fueled by natural gas and perhaps in states like California and maybe elsewhere later on by, by renewables. And that would be the ultimate, and you could have a, a combination of the, uh, the, the, the gas and the renewables. And what makes these uh, Teslas so interesting that they have also developed a building, a billion-dollar factory in Nevada. They uh, have developed a, um, a system that you can put in your, in, in your garage where you can store electricity that you collect on your roof during the day, and at night you can use it. So, in other words, you, you could become, as a household, almost independent. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating idea. So that is the long-term direction we are going. So I, I would be quite optimistic of this, but the, the problem is the, the time it takes to, uh, you know, to, to, to uh, really build the, uh, the facilities to, to, uh, to produce a meaningful numbers of cars to make a difference and get that price down sufficiently so that they can compete with uh, current hybrids. And battery, and battery technology right. as well, right? Um, exactly. I'd really like to underscore that last point that uh, Herm Franson just made. I, I think it's very important to keep in mind that when we're talking about long term, that's not just a, a, a word. Uh, when President Obama first took office, he pledged uh, that by the year 2015, there would be a million electric cars, all electric cars, on U.S. highways. We have less than 350,000 electric cars on the highways today, and we have 5,600 electric charging stations throughout the United States. That's it. You're on, Jer you're on the Jersey Turnpike. Where are you going to pull over to get a fill-up? So this is going to take time, and by, by time I'm really am talking about generations of drivers. Uh, so we kind of keep in mind what long-term really means. Okay. Um, trying to uh, build on that previous one having to do with transportation. Uh, the U.S. Um, march to the West was heavily dependent 
upon and facilitated by railroads. And uh, Teddy Roosevelt uh, broke up the uh, trust, etc., and it's never been quite the same in terms of our focus on railroads, unlike China, unlike Russia. Why is the United States not focusing more on developing um, its newer rail systems uh, in order to improve energy independence? And uh, what role, how do the automakers come into this question uh, as an obstacle or vested interest that does not want to see this occur? That's the question. And then, um, unrelated to it, though, because we're trying to get as many questions as we can, we have another 10 minutes, which is great. We have a lot of questions here. Um, how can you educate us about the extent to which uh, oil prices are influenced by geopolitical dynamics, factors, forces, phenomena? Um, one used to hear that the strikes in Venezuela and violence in Nigeria and uh, violence in Iraq, etc., had a certain percentage of the overall price. We don't, I don't hear that anymore. How would you um, educate us on that? Anyone? Um, so just on the transportation real quick, if I had the formula for geopolitical risk in oil markets, I wouldn't be doing this job. Um, the, on transportation markets, I, I sort of build on the previous question and get to the rail question. I mean, massive infrastructure projects in the United States are very hard to get built. I think Molly outlined that for a number of reasons, and the cost-benefit analysis of doing it in any one region uh, is challenged for various reasons. We had a massive stimulus program that tried to incentivize uh, some of these high-speed rail programs, and even with all the talk of of multimodal transportation. It was something that was very hard and continues to be very hard to get off the ground. Um, I do think, though, that we, we are in danger of being a little bit flat-footed on the transformations that are happening in the transportation sector by just focusing on sort of newfangled technologies like Tesla, even though I love Elon Musk as much as everybody else. Um, I, I think that the real question and danger here is, yes, global oil demand, or you know, danger for folks who produce oil and gas, uh, is that oil demand, yes, it has risen, but it is a smaller share of the overall mix, in, both in the transportation sector and in the power generation sector, and there are people actively competing for market share against oil in the global economy for a vast a variety of reasons. Uh, and so energy efficiency, things like energy efficiency policies proliferating into the developing portions of the world that will drive future uh, demand for oil in the transportation sector or driving it out of the power generation or industrial sector uh, in different parts of the world is also similarly eating away at uh, potential for future demand. Things like ride and vehicle sharing technologies that are being not only proliferated but promoted uh, as anti-congestion policies in rapidly urbanized settings, these are things we're not really great at, but there's lots of advanced algorithms to try and uh, create, make sure that uh, all your millennials and, and uh, other people who are not digital natives uh, start transforming the way that they use uh, transportation. I am not saying that's going to change the face of transportation. I'm saying we really don't know because most of the information is, is pretty anecdotal. So I think we have to take a broader, more expansive look at the, at the things that are actually out there potentially transforming the future of transportation demand. If I could tackle that uh, question about how to translate uh, geopolitical risk 
to uh, costs of uh, energy and projections of energy security, um, first of all, I'm unaware of any formulaic approach that uh, a particular crisis translates into a price increase or a price plummet. Uh, the, the challenge is, and I'm sorry, you have to understand people better. Oh darn, you know, understanding people has never been easy. Uh, and what we, what we are facing are things like consumer preferences. These things come and go. Who knew that we were ever going to have a run on granite for kitchens? Uh, the issues like um, uh, uh, internal political decisions having nothing to do with energy but having profound impact on energy, um, and this can be for political purposes and the application of sanctions, and we heard from Chaz about how effective that's been. Uh, the uh, prospect of using uh, as political weapons economic tools uh, having uh, clearly unforeseen and unanticipated uh, ramifications. So it, I, I, I wish there were a formula that would say here's how geopolitical risk uh, throws uh, the energy market into a tizzy, uh, but so far as I know, no such tool exists. Thank you. Um, we've got one question really driven with re Iran. Um, came in, how does an American opening to Iran and its oil market affect American relationships with Saudi Arabia? Uh, how can the U.S. balance this relationship? I think, um, who would like to ask? Molly, would you like to um, pick that one? Right. What we have is a, uh, at the moment with, with respect to Iran is a P5 plus 1 uh, joint plan uh, for, for implementation. It is not a marriage proposal. It is not friendship for life. These are very, very tough issues uh, that are among folks of long-standing mutual suspicion and hostility. Some we have not had some wonderful sea change uh, of any of the P5 plus one or Iran uh, who have been parties to a an agreement born of mistrust born of all of one side of a table uh, being anxious about the developments on the other side of the table. And as much as the West has been deeply suspicious of Iranian nuclear behavior, so also has Iran been deeply suspicious of Western motivation. So we're not talking about a zero-sum game. You can only have 17 friends, and if you open a door to a former enemy, then you don't have 17 friends anymore. Uh, you, you have to have, uh, you know, 16 friends and, and somebody else uh, nudging at the door. That's not, that's not the nature of the business, nor is it the nature of the agreement. The hard work for monitoring and verifying compliance with a very, very complex uh, agreement begins now and never ends. This is not born out of love and friendship. It's born out of a desire to have an option not to have immediate escalation. We can always escalate. 
<laughs> the question is, can we find a way to buy some space for the future of this planet that does not necessarily involve that escalation? I'm sorry, I've over-talked again. No, no, no you haven't. Uh, we're just com to coming to the, the end. Yes, uh, Herman, and then I want uh, each of you to think of maybe a one sentence or two answer to um, these two questions. Uh, what is the estimate of U.S. shale oil reserves? Uh, how can we uh, believe reports that say it is more than Saudi Arabia's 260 billion barrels? Uh, that's a hell question. How might one analyze the prospects for a greater Arab-Israeli cooperation in the near future as a result of the Iran nuclear deal, if at all? And lastly, how has President Putin's intervention changed the Middle East and the Gulf? And how do you uh, view the um, estimations of some that uh, it's a positive challenge to uh, President Obama and the leadership of the West? Those last three questions, uh, one or two sentence answers, please. Uh, Herman, you lead. Uh, can I just add something to yes, what yes, Molly was yes, saying? Yes. <clears throat> Iran is ready to re-engage with the oil industry. U.S. for the time being will not be in, not because the oil industry doesn't want to be in there, but because of U.S. sanctions. After U.N. sanctions are lifted, we still have U.S. sanctions to cope with. But the industry, Shell, Total, everybody is negotiating at the moment. Negotiating, let's say, putting out their feelings in Tehran to find out what they can do. Uh, new rules and regulations are being prepared. They were supposed to be ready this month, but are now postponed. And there will be a big conference in London uh, with the Iranians in uh, February, where these, these rules and regulations will be detailed. It's quite clear that the European and the Asian industry is ready to go. Uh, not only for oil, but also for gas, because Iran has, the, uh, has after Russia, the biggest gas reserves in the world. Uh, Iran is ready for business. What the industry is trying to find out, how good are the new rules and regulations? How do they compare with the opening up of Mexico, with the opening up of other countries that are beginning to attract the industry? And the jury isn't out yet. But given its size, everybody really wants to, to explore and see how important it's going to be for them. Comment on this? Uh, you want to comment on this, Sarah? No, no. Or oh, Richard? No. Yes. Now, there was someone, Richard. Maybe at the break you can uh, engage her or him, who um, uh, it would take too long to answer it. Is energy interdependence really inevitable, as the panel seems to imply? Would not U.S. independence remove energy as a dis? Storing factor in America's foreign policy priorities. How might that occur? That's a question for you in the networking there. Um, you want to have a final comment, uh, Molly, on these questions that were just asked about Russia? Um, Impact. I, uh, Anyone about the, the shale? The overwhelming uh, um, point that I think we should have no illusion about is that this is a time of tremendous volatility, tremendous fragility, uh, not just for the Middle East region, but globally. And what we are looking at, uh, especially with the most recent uh, steps from Russia uh, into Syria, uh, is unfortunately now the greater incidence uh, or likelihood of accidental 
involvement, unintended consequences, war by accident. Mm -hmm. uh, this is just too many moving parts, too many different uh, agendas and assumptions out there. People don't agree on who the enemy is. They don't agree on what the target is. And so the room for misunderstanding, for umbrage, and for retaliation uh, has increased enormously. Comment on that. That's it. Okay, John. Well, thank you all panelists for uh, excellent presentations. And uh, I think what we'll do today or now is uh, break. Uh, it's 11:30. We've hit our uh, and then clear the room if you wouldn't mind. They're networking out there while they set up for lunch, and then back at 12. So um, join me in uh, a round of applause for the panels, please. <laughs>